Welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's Program Notes for Upcoming Concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparella, and concerts by the CSO on Thursday, March 10th through Saturday the 12th feature guest conductor Herbert Plumstead and pianist Martin Helmschen. The program includes the Mozart Piano Concerto No. 17 and, after intermission, the Romantic, Anton Bruckner's Symphony No. 4. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on the Mozart Piano Concerto No. 17, a work lasting about 32 minutes. According to Mozart's expense book, on May 27, 1784, he purchased for 34 Kreutzer a pet starling that learned to whistle the first five measures of the finale of this concerto. Biographers sometimes confuse which came first, the bird or the tune, although since Mozart had already entered the concerto in his catalog on April 12th, it seems clear that the music was finished by then and that it was Mozart who taught the tune to the starling and not the other way around. Mozart's pet was a member of the Stornus vulgaris, the European starling that now thrives in this country as well. The starling is a virtuoso mimic, the American Scientist Journal reported a starling repeated verbatim after hearing it said just once, does Hamaker Schlemmer have a toll-free number? And it has an uncanny ear for musical patterns. Mozart and his starling agreed on the 17-note theme for this concerto finale, except that the bird always sang one note sharp and held another too long. Mozart's popularity with the Viennese concert public can be gauged from the number of piano concertos he wrote each year. 1784 was the peak year, with six new concertos. Those are the first works that Mozart entered in the catalog he started that February, a detailed listing complete with date, instrumentation, and the opening bars of each new piece of music. Both the first entry, a piano concerto in E-flat, catalog 449, and this G major concerto, the fifth item, were not written for Mozart's own use, but for one of his most gifted students, Barbara Ployer, often called Babette. Mozart said she paid him handsomely for it, though its value to musicians through the years can't be rendered in common currency. Barbara Ployer gave the first performance on June 13th at her family's summer home in the Viennese suburb of Dibling, accompanied by an orchestra her father hired for the occasion. Mozart brought along as his guest the celebrated Italian composer Giovanni Paisiello, whose newest hit, The Barber of Seville, had already made Figaro an operatic sensation before either Mozart or Rossini got the chance. Mozart himself took the keyboard part in his Quintet in E-flat for Piano and Winds, the work that directly precedes the concerto in his catalog, and as an added attraction joined Miss Player in his two-piano sonata catalog 448. The evening was an upscale entertainment, heightened by great music. In the way that Mozart managed better than nearly any composer at any time, this music touches both connoisseur and dilettante alike. It's music of surpassing technical brilliance, but also, in Mozart's own words, written in such a way that the less learned cannot fail to be pleased, though without knowing why. The concerto is one of Mozart's finest, evidence that even at the peak of his career as a virtuoso performer, he was as generous when writing for others as for himself. It was well received by Ployer's guests, and its success quickly spread beyond the suburban enclave of Derbling. It's one of only six of Mozart's piano concertos which were published during his lifetime. 
Beethoven may well have picked up the unusual idea of a second theme that travels rapidly through several keys from the first movement of this concerto, since he does the same in his own piano concerto in this key. The entire opening allegro, a particularly graceful rendering of the military march, is delicate in detail and bold in outline, with surprising dips into E-flat at important junctures. Harmonic drama plays an even more influential role in the C major slow movement, where several powerful modulations and extensive chromaticism give weight to music of great transparency. This is music infinitely more complicated, more troubled than it at first seems. Even the opening statement from the piano swerves from major to minor and from simple declamation to passionate outburst. The finale is a set of variations on the tune The Starling Sang. The variations grow in complexity and ingenuity until the fourth, which plunges headlong into the minor mode, laden with chromaticism. The final variation, almost a cadenza, leads straight into a comic opera finale, the official coda. Surely, Paisiello, whose talent seldom ventured beyond the opera house, marveled that Mozart could afford to waste on the piano concerto a ready-made opera finale more brilliant than anything yet written for the stage. Mozart, of course, realized that the forms weren't mutually exclusive, the merger of the symphonic and the operatic styles is one of his greatest achievements, and that his well was far from dry. He was merely warming up for his own Figaro that in just two years would wipe Paisiello's from the stage. A postscript about the starling, the bird lived with his master for three years, moving with the Mozarts first to the spacious apartment behind St. Stephen's Cathedral, where the marriage of Figaro was composed, and later to cheaper quarters in the Landstrasse, witnessing the birth of Karl Thomas, the couple's second son, Wolfgang's bout with a severe kidney infection, the historic knight Haydn came to listen to string quartets dedicated to him, the birth and death just a month later of a third son, and observing day and night the greatest composer of the time, working at top form. The Starling died on June 4, 1787, inspiring in Mozart an elegy that begins, A little fool lies here, whom I held dear. Mozart then bought a canary that he kept in his room until a few hours before his own death. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Mozart's Piano Concerto Number no. 17. And now on to Anton Bruckner's Romantic, the Symphony No. 4, the work lasting about 66 minutes. Anton Bruckner was 40 when he wrote his first significant large-scale work, a mass in D minor, and 42 before he wrote the first symphony he was willing to claim. After years as a diligent student, Bruckner had finally found his own voice, but he wasn't confident enough to trust it. The third and fourth symphonies were the toughest for him, and in both cases he needed three separate attempts before he was satisfied. He began the fourth symphony in 1874. Four years later, he wrote a new scherzo and finale. In 1880, he made further changes, reaching what was, for the time being, his final score. But in the mid-1880s, he picked up his pencil and returned to the E-flat symphony. It is the 1881 version, the one that was played at the premiere under Hans Richter in Vienna, that is performed at these concerts. Bruckner was responding not just to his own second thoughts, but also to the trivial, though deeply wounding, criticism of others. Well-meaning friends suggested pruning, 
Bruckner has always seemed long-winded to the unsympathetic listener and recommended other changes, which Bruckner dutifully considered and often accepted. Franz Schalk and Karl Löwe, two favorite though unfaithful disciples, thought the scherzo of the Fourth Symphony ought to end pianissimo the first time around, rather than in a blaze of brass as Bruckner conceived it. And so it does in the first printed edition that they prepared in 1890. However, when it came time to authorize that edition, Bruckner refused to sign the printer's copy. It was published anyway. The 1880 version is performed at these concerts. Bruckner was certainly not the first composer to suffer at the hands of insensitive friends and colleagues. A tall, awkward man with a severely cropped Prussian haircut and a wardrobe of seriously misshapen suits, his very appearance seemed to invite doubt and scorn, if not ridicule. Beethoven, once arrested as a vagrant, had already proved that fashion plays no role in musical greatness. But Bruckner's problem lay deeper. From his earliest days, he fought a devastating insecurity that frequently damaged his dealings with people, made his life one of perpetual misery, and almost denied him a career as a composer. Yet, despite his doubts, the failure of several important performances, the hostility of musicians, the Vienna Philharmonic rejected his first three symphonies as unplayable, and the disloyalty of his students, Bruckner managed to get something down on paper that pleased himself if no one else. In time, his unorthodox style with its leisurely pace, slowly unfolding harmony, obstinate repetition of simple motifs and chords, and apparent resistance to wrap things up, found other receptive listeners. Six of Bruckner's symphonies start with a vague rumble that Bruckner picked up from the opening of Beethoven's Ninth, and then focus on an important theme as it breaks through. Sometimes the effect is almost improvisational, as if Bruckner sat at the piano or in the organ loft, because that was his instrument, one hand waiting to see what the other would do. In the Fourth Symphony, it takes us a surprisingly long time to figure out how quickly the music is moving. A calm, clear horn call beckons over string tremolos, but as the theme emerges, it brings with it faster counter-melodies and increasing activity. From Beethoven's Ninth, Bruckner also found his model for a large-scale structure. A big first movement, a spacious adagio, a scherzo in sonata form, and a wide-ranging finale that gathers many threads together in a new light. It's useless, though accurate, to note that the first movement of Beethoven's Fourth is twice as long as any opening symphonic movement in Mozart or Haydn, and comparable only to those of Beethoven's Eroica and Ninth Symphonies among its predecessors. Because Bruckner is not Haydn, Mozart, or Beethoven, not in the way he handles themes, plans his harmonic structure, or conceives form, even if he is working with many of the same tools. It's taken music lovers some time to understand him. Robert Simpson, who wrote one of the first comprehensive studies of the symphonies, describes Bruckner's technique as a manifestation of patience. It is patience, certainly, which many listeners today do not bring to Mozart, and he will not divulge his greatness without it. Bruckner has never been known to make a long story short, but he is a masterful storyteller. The slow movement of this symphony moves at a deliberate and relentless gait, but it's shrewdly paced and lovingly told, and there are moments of almost unimaginable beauty. The grand climax is truly impressive only if one has made the slow ascent. 
The scherzo, with its combination of hunting calls and brass fanfares, is lively, exciting stuff. But the pace is still leisurely, and the trio, marked not too quickly, is delicately scored and even more relaxed. When the scherzo returns, it's particularly noticeable how Bruckner relies not on speed, but on sheer sonority, here the full brass band, to create excitement. A Bruckner finale is always large and complicated, and this one gave him an especially hard time. As Donald Tovey rightly points out, the first thing to realize is that whatever Bruckner chooses to call it, it is really a slow movement, with all the positive qualities thereof. It opens, like the symphony, with a serene horn call over low rumblings that leads to increased commotion. Bruckner takes time for any number of detours to distant harmonic regions, enriching the itinerary immeasurably. The shadow of the scherzo hovers. Near the end, after a barrage from the full orchestra, there is a great, unexpected pause. And then the last full paragraph. As Bruckner told the conductor Arthur Nikisch in explanation of one of his most common idiosyncrasies, he liked to catch his breath before saying something significant. And the ending is important because it brings us back to the opening of the symphony with its simple horn call. There's both a sense of wrapping things up and the satisfaction of reunion as Bruckner gathers together familiar themes like tourists who have gone their separate ways and meet at the day's end. A postscript. Scarcely three months after Bruckner's death in Vienna, Theodore Thomas and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra introduced his Fourth Symphony to Chicago on January 22, 1897, as a way of keeping audiences in touch with musical progress, the Tribune said. It was the first symphony by Bruckner the orchestra ever played. A parting word about the subtitle, Romantic. This is the only symphony by Bruckner with a subtitle added by the composer himself. It was part of a scheme devised by his friends after the symphony was completed to give the music a programmatic storyline as well as a title to draw a more receptive audience. Bruckner reluctantly agreed, but admitted that even he didn't know what the finale was supposed to depict. At these performances, Herbert Blomstedt uses the new critical edition of the 1881 version of Bruckner's Symphony No. 4, edited by Benjamin Korstvedt and recently published by Bernreiter as part of the new Anton Bruckner Complete Edition. It incorporates changes made by the composer during rehearsals before the first performance in February 1881 and clarifies Bruckner's tempo scheme. Program notes by Philip Husher on Anton Bruckner's The Romantic, The Symphony No. 4. I'm Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.